0: Welcome to Energizing Tennessee, powered by the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council and First Bank. We're your number one podcast for news about Tennessee's advanced energy sector. I'm your host, Courtney Piper. Welcome to Season 2 of Energizing Tennessee, powered by the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council and First Bank. If you were a Season 1 listener, welcome back. For those new or newish to Energizing Tennessee, go back and listen to our first season right away. Don't worry, I'll wait. In our first 13 episodes, we featured 17 companies making a difference in advanced energy, including the Tennessee Valley Authority, Ford, Hitachi Zosen, Innova, Denso, Kairos Power, and the Pilot Company. Our guests offered insights and updates about energy issues impacting our state. From advanced nuclear to clean tech startups, we kept finding new ways to answer a big question, why Tennessee? As in, why are so many companies investing in Tennessee? We'll continue to explore this question in greater depth during our new season and how people and organizations are helping energize the state's advanced energy sector. When we decided to launch a podcast in early 2022, we had no idea there would be so many of you out there who wanted to listen to what we had to say. We're incredibly grateful for our listeners and have lined up some phenomenal speakers and topics for our second season. I think you're going to enjoy it. In episode one, we're getting a bird's eye view of the clean energy transition in Tennessee. I had the pleasure of speaking with Julian Spector, a senior reporter at Canary Media, an independent nonprofit newsroom covering the transition to clean energy and solutions to the climate crisis. Julian recently spent time in the Southeast, covering the push towards an electrification supply chain and decarbonization efforts from the country's largest public power provider. That would be TVA. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. As always, if you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review. It helps us reach others who are just as interested in Tennessee's growing advanced energy economy. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to be the first to hear about our new episodes. Energizing Tennessee would not be possible without the support of TAEBC members and our sponsor, First Bank. To learn more about First Bank and how they can support you or your business, visit firstbankonline.com. Julian Spector, senior reporter at Canary Media, welcome to Energizing Tennessee.
1: Hi, Courtney. Thanks for having me.
0: So when you got into into journalism, it was the 20 teens, roughly? (laughs)
1: Yeah. That
0: was a really interesting time to be covering energy and climate change. So what what renewable energy development trends are you seeing in the country right now?
1: Wow, it's changed so much in just... You know, the last decade, uh, I, I think the, at the start of my career, it was still very much the the niche, you know, or like the, the phrase alternative energy, uh, was still used, meaning it's not like the, the real deal. It's not the main show. It's kind of this, this little thing on the side. And, you know, what we've seen, uh, it's just solar coming way down in cost and ramping up in scale. And now battery is going that way too, um, to the point that, You know, today the the power plants getting built in the United States, uh, clean energy is the vast majority. It's you know north of eighty percent of the new uh, nameplate capacity getting built is uh, is clean stuff. So you know, solar leading the way on that, but a lot of wind. And uh, this year we're looking at actually more battery plant capacity than uh, gas new new gas plants getting built. So yeah, that's a that's a whole different world we're in where this is this is competitive. You know. It's not just the the early states that are mandating it. Uh, if you look at Texas, with the most rough and tumble competitive markets, they're building more renewables than anybody else. Um, so I think that's a that's a pretty good signal. You know, if you're if you're wondering whether these technologies are are finally competitive or not,
0: absolutely. And you visited Tennessee this summer. You were here sort of the June July timeframe, so I'm sure it was hot outside.
1: I actually, I came earlier in the spring and then was writing it and, and publishing it in the, in the summertime frame. So no, I, I managed to catch the like real beautiful like springtime before it kind of turned, turned swampy and summery. <laughs> That's my favorite time of year. It was so, lovely. It was lovely.
0: Great. Well, you know, we were happy to have you in the state. Uh, what, what sparked your interest in covering the clean energy transition in the South? I mean, especially in Tennessee.
1: Yeah, well, we've been doing a lot of coverage at Canary Media on the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of how that's changing the the landscape, both in terms of business opportunities for clean energy and in terms of just the actual landscape is, is changing. And, you know, one of the huge repercussions of that is we finally have federal incentives for manufacturing clean energy in the United States, which really wasn't a big part of the, the industry in the past. There was kind of a tacit uh, acknowledgement. I think that, you know, if it's cheaper to import it from China, we'll do that. And if that gets us more cheap solar panels and batteries, that's that's good for everyone. And the IRA changed things and said, actually, for, for each of these key components you make in the U.S., here's, here's additional tax credits. And that just kicked off this incredible flurry of, of factory commitments, but also actual construction and, and openings. And we started noticing when we were tracking, we we made a map, you know, seeing where all these new clean energy factories are going. And they weren't going to the the states that had been, you know, the the first ones to pass the big solar commitments or battery installation mandates or EV adoption mandates. Um, It's not like the the kind of rah-rah climate policy states. Um, And it's not even like the old Rust Belt, you know, like Michigan is getting a lot of the, the factories, but um, it's, it's the Southeastern states we're getting the most like sheer private investment in, uh, in new factories. So Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, um, you're getting these just billions and billions of dollars going into the building the batteries, building the electric cars themselves. And now there's a new kind of uh, battery recycling industry springing up that's related to those. So we wanted to just get a on the ground view of like, why is that happening here? Uh, What are the factors drawing those manufacturers to the South specifically? And um, you know what? What does that really mean for the long-term project of of decarbonizing the U.S. energy system? Like, is the country more likely to achieve its its climate goals because the South has become this this powerhouse of clean energy production?
0: You're right. Tennessee and the surrounding region have dominated the headlines with our growing EV supply chain, and in fact, our governor uh, right before the. P- pandemic, planted his flag and said, I want Tennessee to be the number one state in the country for the electric vehicle supply chain. And, you know, you recently wrote about how the surge didn't happen overnight, but was decades in the making. You talked to one of our board members, Matt Kisper, who was a former commissioner of economic and community development in the state of Tennessee. And, you know, I've lived here in Tennessee for 25 years now, so I've had this pleasure of working with people that were here from the very beginning. They would say when Senator Lamar Alexander was our governor and put all these wheels in motion because he was the one that started recruiting foreign automakers to the state. So. You know, I've had that yeah. sort of opportunity to talk to people and sort of see things happen step by step by step. But talk to me about your observations of our electric vehicle supply chain as a as an outsider and somebody who hasn't been here for twenty five years.
1: Right? Yeah. No. And and Matt was a real help in as I was trying to understand this history. Uh, I actually first met him at a solar project because he's involved with running Silicon Ranch, the probably the biggest Tennessee based large-scale solar developer um so i met him in a in a field out in shelbyville where they were inaugurating this new um large solar plant to to power vanderbilt university and then realized he had this whole background doing economic development for uh governor bredesen and, and knew you know he'd personally been involved in a lot of these deals to like lay the groundwork for for vw coming to chattanooga or for for Ford to do the blue oval city and uh Outside of Memphis, so yeah, I love history. I love studying history and and seeing how the, the state of play today is is shaped by what came before. And um, you know, w- what I was learning in the course of reporting on this is how uh, there had been this really concerted effort since I guess around the '60s to to start shifting the economy from uh, primarily agricultural, kind of agrarian, old school, uh, you know, workforce and and products and and really intentionally build up the, the high-tech manufacturing space and it, it took a while you know you can't just do that overnight but um bit by bit uh, folks were able to attract like I think nissan was one of the big early like foreign automakers that came and set up shop and then started building out this whole supply chain of all the all the like parts and and uh, suppliers, auxiliary things you need to put in cars, and then the the full fledged car car makers started coming uh, as well. After that, and I think there's a few things going for it. You know, certainly I kept hearing the workforce is is a real valuable resource, and you got a lot of good universities and technical chops. Uh, so the the automakers look for that. Also, just the, the sheer physical, like, logistical capabilities of, of Tennessee.
0: Um, yeah. And, Julian, you also wrote that the Southeast has become indispensable to the national quest to clean up transportation-related emissions. Where do you see this going in the next five or ten years?
1: I think uh, among all the clean energy technologies, the electric vehicles are the most consumer facing. Now that people have more options on the market, they're voting with their, their wallets and, you know, the, the, the rate of new sales keeps, keeps climbing. So I, I, from what I've seen, just expect that to take off at a rate that goes way faster than the other kinds of clean technologies that are just, they're a little stickier, a little more um, friction to their adoption. And that has all these ramifications for, for the grid and for society. And, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to make sure we're getting enough electricity to all the places where people want to be driving their electric cars at the right time and everything. But Tennessee has been laying the groundwork to be a major producer of it. I mean, getting Ford to come in. There's really no more iconic vehicle than the the Ford F one fifty, you know, best selling vehicle in America for forty years plus. Um, And to have that made in Tennessee seems symbolic of uh, leading into the new the new clean uh, clean transportation future. And then separate from the the like actually building the key ingredients of that future, I think the Tennessee Valley Authority has a has a really interesting role to play there because since they're public power, uh, they aren't driven by sending the most profits to some Wall Street shareholders every quarter uh, and instead their, their goal is to you know provide affordable reliable power for the region and to, and to develop the economy of the region and so they've played a really active role in actually helping bring forward and helping bring some of these other uh, high-tech manufacturers which in many cases requires them to beef up their supply of clean energy because the new high-tech demand sources, these factories or data centers and all that, they want clean energy too. And so I, I think sort of more than maybe any any other part of the country, there's this kind of union of purpose between the, the grid planning, the energy planning, and the industrial planning going on there um, in a way that you know, it's it's not over yet, but so far it seems to be kind of helping grow both sides, like helping support the manufacturers and boosting clean energy in in the the valley uh, at the same time. So that's that's like a neat trend to to see.
0: And let, let's talk about TVA. So when the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council was formed. We formed it with this premise that TVA is an asset for all those reasons that you stated. It is public power and it has this three-pronged mission of environmental stewardship, power generation, and economic development. So when you came to visit Tennessee and you wrote about TVA, you wrote that if public power truly can lead the way in economy-wide decarbonization, TVA is the largest and best-equipped practitioner to prove it. So let's talk about what makes TVA the most equipped, and what are some areas for growth.
1: The largest is easy; it's like 10 million customers. Um, you know, it's just nobody operating at that scale in that kind of nonprofit uh, public model. Um, and then, as far as best equipped, they they have a lot of technical expertise from their kind of legacy operations that's turning into really interesting assets for for the new kind of clean energy planning and it's notable i think that you you always saw them as an asset because certainly a lot of people like to hate on them which is true probably every utility but like TBA gets gets flack from all sides of like, oh, they're they're even though they're nonprofit, they're still a monopoly. So there's a, a whole group of people who don't like that because they're too big and they like big solutions. And you know, people who uh, think they're not moving fast enough. And and you know, so I kind of came into reporting this, really trying to answer the question of like, are they moving fast enough? I don't actually know a lot of people say they aren't and that they're trying to lock in new fossil fuel plants when they shouldn't be. And um, what I learned is they hadn't actually moved very quickly on clean energy over the last decade. Um, So, you know, when the rest of the country was kind of figuring out wind and solar could be really cheap and, and effective, TVA didn't dip its toes in very much. Um, but it did have legacy clean energy. You know, it's already like more than half of their generation is, is carbon free from all the, the hydro and the nuclear that they've had for decades. So they're starting from a fairly clean baseline. And then what I learned is that they switched gears in just the last couple of years to go like full throttle on new clean energy construction. And when they set their mind to something they can just move like nobody else because they they actually don't have a lot of the layers of oversight that other utilities have. So they, they don't need to run every decision through a public utility commission, which in other states, you know, they, they get to sign off on what utilities are allowed to build and, and recover their costs for. But the public power doesn't have that. So they don't have to like convince these regulators that clean energy is actually a good thing. They could just decide that it's good and, and go for it. And then they they have this sort of long term planning capability because they're not beholden to a quarterly Wall Street schedule of having to like increase earnings and increase profits and and just sort of keep ratcheting that up as the most important thing. They can actually say providing clean and and affordable and reliable power to this community over the long term is the most important thing, and that means they've both been able to really fast track the near term renewables development. Like they um, just last year put out a call for five gigawatts of of new clean energy capacity, which is going to be presumably like almost all solar when it gets built. And like, I went around looking at other utility clean energy procurements, and I don't, think any other utility has ever asked for five gigawatts of clean energy in one go. Like I, I think that scale is just on another level. Uh, so they're building that. They're building all this new solar. At the same time, they're thinking long term and, and considering projects that aren't really being done in the more short term market driven parts of the, the country. Um, so these would be small modular nuclear reactors, which is building on this legacy nuclear experience, but trying to make them more bite-sized so you don't run into the kind of issues that Georgia did with Vogel just being so huge and, and getting way off schedule and over budget. So they're, they're, they're scoping that out. That's not coming anytime soon, but maybe by the end of the decade, getting in the 2030s. If they can get the technology to where they think it's, it's viable, you, you might start seeing a bunch of these, say, 300 megawatt uh, reactors popping up. Um, and then the other key one to watch is uh, what's called pumped hydro storage. And that's actually like the, the OG battery for the grid. Like even with all the excitement on lithium ion batteries, 90, 95 percent of U.S. grid storage capacity comes from these legacy projects that just pump water up a hill. And store it in a reservoir and then you can run the water down when you need it and, and turn a turbine and, and generate electricity again so i actually visited that tba's biggest pumped hydro facility it's called raccoon mountain right outside chattanooga and it's gorgeous it's <laughs> you're like i've been to a lot of lithium-ion battery installations; they're super boring it's just like shipping container sized boxes like white metal boxes with batteries inside But this is far bigger than any lithium-ion battery anywhere. Um, It's more than 1,600 megawatts, which is just really massive. Um, And it can theoretically keep that huge amount of power flowing for up to 22 hours, uh, which is just enormous. And that was built in the 70s. So it's like 70s-era technology that's outperforming (laughs) anything that the modern energy storage technology has come up with since. the the key point being nobody's built one of these things in a few decades in the us anyways because now that we've deregulated a lot of the power sector and things need to be like competitive in the in the energy markets today to generate a return for private investors no one's really figured out how to make that work for this kind of asset which takes years to build you know it could be like a billion dollars of upfront capital expense And then it pays itself off over like 50 years or more, but that just doesn't really work in the model of like fast paced, competitive private markets. However, if you're TVA and you're used to thinking in multi-decade timelines, then that actually could be a thing they build a new one of to, you know, store all that solar power that they're building and store, they don't have a ton of wind, but you know, just whatever the ups and downs of the renewables are, you can pump that water up and, and keep it there. And then you have clean power all through the night.
0: The the really interesting thing with TVA, and I can tell you as the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council has been represented on a lot of TVA working groups and committees related to their integrated resource plan, we have certainly seen a shift in TVA as well. So you talked about how, you know, TVA was kind of puttering along, yeah, clean energy, puttering along. And then the last couple of years, it was like, the foot is on the gas pedal and we are going. And, You know, what I've observed too is, and you mentioned this in your reporting, is because Tennessee has been attractive, attracting a lot of the automotive supply chain. And because we are also a hub for North American headquarters, those companies that are coming here, uh, as well as data centers. Those companies that are coming here have very aggressive corporate sustainability goals. And when they come here, a condition of locating or staying or growing in Tennessee is, you've got to give me access to renewable energy. So it has been incredible to see that kind of economic development pull resulting in TVA's reaction. Yes, we can. We'll do this. We'll look at this, five gigawatts of that. So uh, that's been really interesting and and sort of fascinating to, to watch over the last couple of years here. But final thoughts, Julian, you have been reporting on this topic for a while. You have seen a lot of things. So what are some gaps or areas of improvement Tennessee can capitalize on in this clean energy transition?
1: I think Silicon Ranch has taken a very thoughtful approach. They're, they're the ones building a lot of the biggest solar plants in, in Tennessee, and they're very uh, holistic and collaborative in, in how they approach it because they, they want to be good neighbors. Silicon Ranch has tried to model this collaborative approach of saying, we're, we're going to be your neighbor for 20 years or more. Uh, we want to be a good neighbor. So what can we do to make everyone uh, have a good time here? And um, I think that kind of thing is probably going to be more necessary for the industry at large in, in the years to come. Like we're in the early stages of the, the massive renewables buildup, but land use is, is already emerging as one of the conflict zones and, you know where, where things might uh, get tricky. And then I think bigger picture, you know, communicating the the benefits of this stuff is really important. I I think the public awareness of the state of clean energy always lags a few years. But, you know, telling that story and and showing, hey, like, you know how your bills probably went up when, when gas prices went up, the more solar we use. That's the the reduces your exposure to gas prices. So if we don't want to have your your home energy bill rising because Vladimir Putin goes and invades a country on the other side of the world, solar is American produced energy that is is uh, providing a counterpoint to you know the the fossil fuels that are tied to these global markets and things. Um, so. Yeah, I think uh it's always good to make sure the community is aware of how they're benefiting from the these changes that are afoot um cuz change can always be a little daunting, a little scary. It can be tough. Yeah, yeah. And then I think on the on the electric vehicle side, it'll be interesting to see how the state, you know, paves the way for, for drivers and, and, and customers in Tennessee to, to benefit from those electric vehicles. Because, you know, you do need some coordination on public charging and there might need to be some improvements to the grid itself to, to get the power to the right places to allow for the charging to happen. And, you know, it, it, I think there would be sort of a missed opportunity if Tennessee becomes one of the biggest producers of electric vehicles, but actual adoption within the state doesn't grow very fast because there's there's too many hurdles. But, you know, the, the jobs are coming, right? You're, you've already got thousands of jobs being added for for these factories that have already been announced. And, you know, I think that's, that's pretty neat, too, because for a while, clean energy, the jobs have been mostly in installing it. And now we're entering this new era where these are old school factories with manufacturing jobs that pay these good wages and they're putting thousands of people to work in the clean energy industry in a way that we weren't doing in the past.
0: Julian Spector, senior reporter, Canary Media, I'm officially inviting you back to Tennessee. You can come take a look at our clean tech uh, ecosystem here. We've got about 25 startups every year doing climate tech and clean tech. So, I want to officially invite you back to Tennessee for another tour or a subject of your choice. We loved having you on the show. Tell our listeners where they can learn more about you and your work.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that invite can't wait to get back. Uh, you know, hopefully there's some live music and, you know, some good, good Southern cooking involved as well. Um, yeah. And and yeah, to, to, to follow the work, you know, just canarymedia.com is, is where I do my writing. Like I said, we're, we're a nonprofit startup. We're trying, there's been a lot of turbulence in the for-profit media world in recent years. So we're trying a different model where we think we can be more sustainable by balancing different kinds of of fundraising and grants and, and reader donations and things. So you can sign up for our newsletter. It's all free. We want people to read everything we write and we have some podcasts and do some short videos. Um, so check that out. And we're always happy to have more reader donations. Um, but mostly we, we just want people reading and, and getting the information they need about the uh, shift away from fossil fuels. So really appreciate you letting me talk about that.
0: Great. CanaryMedia.com. Check it out. Julian, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Awesome. Have a great day.
0: And that's our show. Thanks for tuning into Energizing Tennessee, powered by the Tennessee Advanced Energy Business Council and First Bank. We're glad to be your number one podcast for news about Tennessee's advanced energy sector. If you like what you heard, please share it with others or leave a rating and review. To catch the latest episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow TAEBC on social media or sign up for our newsletter to hear about our events or learn even more about Tennessee's growing advanced energy economy.